Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. There's a lot to be said about love. We live in a world where there have been many songs written about love. One that comes to mind right away is a song written by four philosophers in the late 60s. They said, all you need is, right? Now that song is just going to be stuck in your head as you think about it. They said, all you need is love. And it began this quote unquote revolution where it was free love, but they didn't really understand what love was. Their type of love was driven through emotion. Their kind of love was probably driven through feeling, and yet that's not all that love is. We live in a world where where, where media media is discipling us and trying to tell us what love is. We we grow up with movies from, from Disney that tell us that you need to find true love's kiss to be able to be truly who you are. And I would say that's a false narrative. We do need to find true love, but we find true love in a man named Jesus. And we're able to understand what that love is through this passage. I believe, church, that for such a time as this, there is an importance for us to not just believe that we are to love, but we're to act upon that love. It is the very marker that would truly identify us as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus would say this in John chapter 13, verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Our love for others will prove not to the believers, but to this world, to this broken, dying world that we are followers of Jesus. Our love needs to be seen. Our love needs to be known. And we start here in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the first three verses, we read this. It says, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though, uh, and though all faith uh, so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love is supreme. Doing things without a foundation of love will always miss the mark. The Corinthians were captivated with spiritual gifts, in particular the gift of tongues. Paul reminds them that even the gift of tongues is meaningless without love. Without love, a person may speak with the gift of tongues, but it is meaningless. It's like sounding brass or clanging cymbals. It is nothing but empty, echoing noise. And and so what I was going to do, I have it in my notes. I was going to give you an illustration. I was going to try to tell you about love. And I was going to have the drummer come out and just start wailing on the cymbals. But turns out that I'm the drummer this weekend. And so you guys get the picture that to, to the world, without knowing or without having love, we can speak about spiritual things. But to the world, without that love, it's just noise. And it's not just noise, it's irritating noise. It's deafening noise. And so we see here, he's, Paul starts this chapter by saying, listen, without the foundation of love, anything you do is meaningless. It's almost like saying, Paul is saying this, doesn't matter how spiritual you are, if you don't truly love, you're not going to be able to reach people. He says prophecy, knowledge, and faith to do miracles are just as irrelevant apart from love. Christians in Corinth missed the motive and the goal of these gifts. 
making what they did the goal. Paul here draws the attention back to the goal, which is love. Paul here quotes the idea of Jesus referring to faith which could remove mountains. We see this in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Now, what an amazing thing it would be to have faith that could work the impossible, to move giant things because of our faith. And yet, even with that kind of faith, we are nothing without love. To be able to say, I believe so much that God is able to do this, I would be able to move mountains. It's meaningless if I don't have a pattern of love. Now, this passage isn't an issue of love versus the gifts. We should never be forced to choose between love and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul's emphasis is to focus on the goal of the gifts. The goal of having the gifts is love. The the goal of being able to, to have the Holy Spirit give me the gift of tongues, to be able to have the faith to move mountains. The goal of those gifts is to show love, not the goal themselves. The gifts are not the goal. To love, to understand and know and show love, that is the goal because it is the very marker of the Christian. Even if we had all the gifts of the Spirit, even if we had so much faith that we could move giant things, we could move mountains, they would fail without having a foundation of love. Now the word love here is the Greek word agape. It's the same word used, again, to describe the marker of a true disciple, a follower of Jesus in John 13. The ancient Greeks had four different words we could translate as love. It is important to understand the difference between the words and why the Apostle Paul chose the Greek word agape here. We have the word eros, which describes, as we might guess, the word itself, erotic love. It refers to sexual love between a husband and a wife. That's not what Paul is using here. We also have the word storgi, which refers to family love, the kind of love there is between a parent and a child or between family members. That's not the kind of love he's speaking of here. We have the word philia. It speaks of a brotherly love. It's where we get the word Philadelphia for this city, the, bro- the city of brotherly love. It speaks of brotherly friendship and affection. It is the love of deep friendship. It could be described as the highest love people without God's help is capable of. But even that is not what Paul is talking about here. Now, we use this word love so easily today, right? I love pizza. Anybody love pizza in the room? Can I get an amen? Amen. I might, I might love pizza too much. We can say, I love movies. And yet that fails to describe what Paul is speaking here. We use the word love so much that we can easily forget the weight and the gravity of what agape love really is. And so it's important for us to understand what Paul is saying here. We read this passage so often in weddings. And yet, how often do we really think about this passage in the right context of what love is? Agape love is a love that loves without changing. It is a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It is love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. According to Alan Redpath, we get our English word agony from the root word agape. He says this, it means the actual absorption of our being in one great passion. 
Agape can be defined as a sacrificial love. A giving love. An absorbing kind of love. When we think about love, we don't, we don't always think about agony. And yet we know as believers that we see love demonstrated because Jesus chose the cross on our behalf. He chose to love us in spite of our sin. The agony he felt was because of our penalties of sin to reveal to us what true love is. The word agape has little to do with emotion, but it has everything to do with self-denial for the sake of another. Now we can read this chapter and think that Paul is saying that if we are unfriendly, then our lives mean nothing, but that's not what he's saying. Agape isn't really just speaking to friendliness. It is self-denial for the sake of another. It is choosing the other in spite of how I feel. This is the foundation of agape love. Now it's unfortunate that many of our relationships today, marriages, friendships, families, they don't last, they're dysfunctional, they don't work because we as followers of Jesus do not have this pattern and understanding of agape love in our lives. Paul again emphasizes here, even if I give all my goods to feed the poor. He's referring to Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 16 to the rich young ruler. But even if the rich young ruler had done what Jesus said and did it without love, it would have, have been no profit to the rich young, young ruler. Even though I give my body to be burned, even if I lay my life down as a martyr, apart from love, it will profit nothing. Now, most wouldn't doubt the spiritual credentials of someone who gave away everything they had and gave up their lives at a mar as a martyr, but those are not the best measurements of someone's true spiritual maturity. Love is and will always be the best measurement. It is the pattern for which Jesus said, people will know us by. Many Christians believe the Christian life is all about sacrifice, sacrificing our money, sacrificing our life, our dreams for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, sacrifice, really important, but without love, it is useless. It profits us nothing to sacrifice without a deep desire of agape love. As a church, as believers, we are called to be a people of the kingdom culture, that our mindset is for the kingdom. We're not called to be a cancel culture. Cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for, canceling, public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. We live in a culture where if you don't agree with me, if you hurt me, I don't have to deal with you. Now, although hurts and pains are real, our example in Jesus and our desire to be more like him cannot and should not allow us this freedom in just canceling people. Or let's put it in another, in another frame. You're not worth my time. We can do this in our minds. We can do this in our hearts, even if we never post it. Here's the difficulty that we live in today because of social media. Because we feel this, this great desire to just cancel people or to say like, I don't agree with you, so you're not worth my time. We start posting it on social media. And so not only are we affected, but then we start encouraging that in others. You may not even know what cancel culture is, but you practice it because of the way that you act towards others. 
We live in an interesting time where we can easily feel a certain way about somebody and not really grasp what agape love is. Now, each thing described in these verses are good things. Speaking in tongues is good. Prophecy and knowledge and faith are good. Sacrifice is good. But love is so valuable and so important that apart from it, every other good thing is useless compared to the necessity of agape love. Sometimes we make the great mistake of letting go of what is best for something else that is good. I believe the greatest enemy to desiring God's best isn't the worst things. None of us say, God, I want the worst things in life. But the greatest enemy to God's best for our lives is the settling for the good things. I'm comfortable, I don't have to talk to you. Keep it moving. Deuces. However you say it, it's not agape love. This kind of mindset, this kind of culture within our own hearts, it's what I believe makes us comfortable and stagnant as believers. Now, let's be real for a moment. All of us like to be comfortable. It's why we buy the cars that we buy. It's why we buy the clothes that we buy. We want to be comfortable. None of us really like being uncomfortable. But what agape love does is that it breaks that kind of pattern in our lives because we take that desire to be comfortable and we make it spiritual. And agape love wants to break that pattern in our life. Agape love leads us to go beyond what's comfortable. How many of you guys were alive in the 80s? Just by a show of hands, you can keep them up. All right, 80s. Now, the ones that are not holding up your hands, uh, these are the people that are old. I was alive in the 80s, you know, um, and I've grown, to really, I've grown to really appreciate 80s music. Fashion, not so much, but I've grown to really appreciate 80s music. And in the 80s, there was a band this band was called Foreigner. You guys know this band? Yeah? They had a song called, I Want to Know What Love Is. There's an interesting connection to this song. Because Lou Graham, the lead singer of Foreigner, he co-wrote this song with a guy named Mick Jones. Lou Graham wrote most of the song, and I believe he had a deep desire to know what love is. Lou Graham became a drug addict, had a stint in drug rehab, and while he was in drug rehab, he had an encounter with love. He had an encounter with true love. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Became a born-again believer, and eight years after he wrote this song, I Want to Know What Love Is, he knew, he now knows what true love is. Church, if you want to know what love is, watch what love does. Watch what it does. 1 Corinthians 13. We'll read verse 4. It says this, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not, is not puffed up. If you want to know what love is, watch what love does. Love is long-suffering and kind. We see here that love is described by action words, not by sweet, fairy tale, Disney movie concepts. Paul is not writing about how he feels. He is writing about how it can be seen in action. True love is always demonstrated by action. If you want to know what love is, watch what love does. Love suffers long or it's patient. Love will endure a long time. It is the heart shown in God. 
when it is said of God, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but it is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Now, if God's love is in us, we will show long-suffering to those who annoy us. We will show long-suffering to those who cause us pain, to those who even hurt us. Now, let me be clear. This is not an excuse to, say, to stay in situations where, where people are hurting you. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, it gives us the mindset to see everyone the way Jesus sees them. Is anyone outside the reach of God's love? If you're taking notes, I want you to write down these two questions. You can even think about them as you're writing them down. Here's the first question. What will it take for God to lose patience with me? What will it take for God to lose patience with me? Second question is this. What does it take for me to lose patience with others? Now, if those two answers are contradicting to one another, it might just be that the pattern of agape love is not founded in our heart. We might be lacking the foundation of agape love if those two answers differ from one another. Because if we believe that God's love can reach anyone, if, if we believe that God's love can reach me, why can't it reach others? What will it take what will it take to lose patience with others? Because God doesn't lose, lose patience with us. Love suffer, suffers long and it's kind. When we have God's love and show God's love, we will find that if God would allow difficulty in our lives, we'll find that when that difficulty ends, and we have faced it with patience and long-suffering, our response should be kindness. It should not be revenge. It shouldn't be anger. You see, kindness is, is what actually helps us to endure difficulty. It is the kindness we have from the goodness of God. We see in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, how tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it might just be the kindness of God being revealed through you that would lead someone else to repentance. But if this world doesn't see what agape love is, how will they ever know what it is? And this world isn't going to see agape love in the world. Agape love is intended to be an action item for the church. because it is the marker of true followers of Jesus Christ. Let's continue on in, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. We'll, we'll again read, read verse four and then we'll go to verse six. It says this, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. It is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not, receive, uh, not, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. You see, love is not envious. Love is not proud. Agape love is not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not cliquish. It's not quickly offended. It's not suspicious. And it doesn't become happy with evil. Love does not envy. Envy or jealousy is one of the least productive and most damaging of sins. It accomplishes nothing except to hurt you and to hurt others. Love keeps its distance from envy. Agape love does not resent when someone else is promoted or blessed. Now, if you think envy is a small sin, 
maybe you don't truly understand what envy is. Envy murdered Abel. We see this in Genesis chapter 4. Envy enslaved Joseph. We see this in Genesis 37. Envy put Jesus on the cross. Matthew 27, 18 says this, for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Envy is arrogantly thinking you deserve more than what you have. Let's put it in a different way. Let's use the word entitled. Are you an entitled person? Because if you're an entitled person, it becomes really hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. Without thinking to myself, that should be me. Agape love does not have envy. Agape love does not parade itself. It's not boastful. Love doesn't need everyone else's recognition. It does not have to have the spotlight or all the attention to do a good job. It doesn't need the attention to be satisfied with the results. We don't have to prove agape love by posting it on social media. We don't have to prove agape love by telling everybody else what we've done. It's not boastful. It doesn't parade itself. Agape love gives because it loves to give, not because of what it will get in return. Agape love chooses to extend itself even if no one recognizes it. Love is not puffed up, it's not proud. To be puffed up or proud is to be arrogant and self-focused. It speaks of someone who has a big head. Agape love doesn't get a big head. It focuses on the needs of others. Both to parade itself and to be puffed up are simply rooted in pride. Among Christians, the worst pride is spiritual pride. Look how spiritual I am. Look at what I'm doing for the kingdom of God. In his commentary, Pastor David Guzik puts it this way. He says, pride of face is obnoxious. Pride of race is vulgar. But the worst pride is pride of grace. that when we as believers become so prideful about who we are or what we believe and what we're against, that we just become a clanging symbol again to everybody. It's an easy trap that we all fall in to be so wrapped up in ourselves as Christians that we neglect to love and to show love to a dying world. Love is not puffed up. It doesn't parade itself. It doesn't behave rudely. Where there is love, there will be kindness and good manners. Now, I'm not talking about like the, the elbow on the table kind of manners, although that's challenging for me. I grew up in a household where that wasn't necessarily good manners, and so I'm always like putting my elbows on the table. but it is simply just not being rude. Not having a motive to do everything in just self-interest. Here's another question to, to write down, to ask yourself, when I am offended, how do I respond? Do I respond with kindness? Or are my thoughts rude? when I'm interacting with people who don't agree with me, when I'm interacting with people who have injured me or hurt me, are my thoughts towards them kind? Or are they rude? 
See, love, agape love, does not seek its own. The NLT puts it this way, it does not demand its way. Paul shares the same idea in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, in honoring, giving preference to one another. It's also in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, it carries the same thought, let each of you look, not, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. The reason why we wear masks in this room today is because we think about others more highly than ourselves. Because these masks, as uncomfortable, as inconvenient as they are, they won't help you. But it's to show that we prefer other people more highly than ourselves. This is being like Jesus in a most basic way, being an others-centered person instead of a self-centered person. Let me put it in this way. Do you choose to be inconvenienced for the sake of others? Do we choose to be inconvenienced for the sake of being able to, to be able to love someone, to show them what agape love is, even to maybe win them over to God's goodness? We live in a culture today where this is increasingly harder and harder, but I believe the more that we choose agape love, the more that we choose to prefer others more highly than ourselves, we will begin to see the benefits become greater. When we become less self-centered and become more others-centered, we'll begin to see that our lives actually mean more because we're desiring to love others more than ourselves. Love is not provoked. It's not irritable. I don't know about you, but I find it really easy to be provoked or to become irritated with people that don't agree with me. Do you get irritated with people that don't agree with you? Consider it a sin to be provoked. Think about how you think about people that you disagree with. Is it lovingly? Is it appreciative of how God has made them? When you're irritated with someone, do you go, God, thank you for making them? I know that's not my first, that's not my initial reaction. And yet we understand this, that God has created man in his image. And so you bear the image of God just as I bear the image of God. And when I'm irritated or I'm provoked by someone that I don't agree with, my initial thought isn't, man, you know what? God created you in his image. We as a staff have been going through a book called The Third Option. It's by a pastor named Miles McPherson. But he says this in this book. He says, when you give anyone a name less than neighbor, you choose to not love them. You don't have to love them because God tells us we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. But when I choose to call you anything other than my neighbor, I don't have to love you. And yet, God has created everyone in his image. God has called you to love your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. Sometimes it's easier to get irritated and provoked more than to just show what love is. The challenge here is that most of the time when we're irritated with someone, the thoughts that we think of them aren't to be reminded of how God has created them. Think about this, Moses was kept from the promised land because he became provoked at the people of Israel. We see this account in Numbers chapter 20. God had commanded him to speak to the rock, but because he was provoked and irritated by the people because they blamed him for their suffering, he struck the, the rock twice instead. And this is what God had to say to him. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, he says this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I'm giving them. Do we, do we trust that God's instruction is good for us? 
Because if we do, those irritations might lessen. Because we'll be able to see that even if we disagree with this person, God is still working in their life. Let's put it in this way. My sin looks really bad in you. Our sin typically looks worse in other people, and yet we're all fallen people with the ability to be saved by grace through faith. The Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it might just be that as you suffer long and as you're patient and as you're not being puffed up with pride and as you're able to not be provoked or irritated that God might use you in someone's life where you disagree with them because you're founded and you have a pattern of agape love in your life. From Moses, he didn't get to experience the promised land. But for you, what might it be? I hope it's never said of me where God would say, because you didn't trust my holiness, you didn't trust to demonstrate my holiness, Ian, you can't be a part of this. What a sad statement to hear from God. Love thinks no evil. It keeps no record of wrong. Literally, this means love does not store up the memory of any wrong it has received. Love will put away the hurts of the past instead of clinging to them. Now, can we just all agree, this one is really hard. It is really hard to keep no record of wrong. Because in a room like this, full of people like this, it is guaranteed that this room is full of hurts and pains. It is guaranteed that you have been wronged by someone, by multiple people. And yet, agape love would say it doesn't keep record of wrong. Love does not keep record of wrong. Sometimes we get hurt by people, we get hurt physically, we get hurt mentally, we get hurt emotionally, and sometimes those hurts leave lasting effects. We get scars. We get hurt and we get scars. But let me tell you, scars have an opportunity to remind us that God heals. The hurts are real. The hurts might still even be there. There might be some residual effects that remain from that hurt. But scars can be a reminder that God is still healing today. I want to take a moment and just let you know, like if, if this is one of the ones that are really hard because there is hurt, I want to encourage you you're not alone. Not only do you have people who also deal with hurts, but you have a God who loves you and not only knows those hurts, but feels those hurts. It would be said of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Our God is a God of empathy. He knows your pain, he knows your hurts, and he feels them. Agape love wants to release you from keeping a record of that hurt. So that we don't use this statement, forgive and forget, we're able to say forgive and forgive, and forgive, and forgive, and forgive. Because we keep no record of wrong when we find ourselves in agape love. Agape love does not rejoice in iniquity or injustice. Agape love doesn't find enjoyment in immoral behavior or the consequences of sin. It is willing to want the best for others 
Instead of rejoicing in iniquity, instead, love rejoices in the truth. Has this been a thought in your mind or have you ever verbalized this? Well, they got what was coming to them. That's not agape love. They deserve that. I'm so glad that that happened. They needed that. That's not agape love. When my enemy, someone I disagree with, is put down, wiped out, taken out, agape love doesn't rejoice in that. Agape love rejoices in the truth. Jesus would say this, I am the way, the truth. It's the same word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God's eternal plan and desire for man, that's what we rejoice in. We rejoice in knowing that Jesus is able to save even the hardest heart. We rejoice in knowing that Jesus has saved even the hardest of hearts. And he's still able to do that today. That is the truth. That's what we should find ourselves rejoicing in. Back to 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 7 says this. Speaking of agape love, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, listen, we can bear some things. We can all believe some things. We can all hope some things. And we can all endure some things. But God doesn't call us to do some things. He doesn't call us to partially do things. He says, bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. God's call, God calls us farther and deeper into love for him, for one another, and for the world that is broken, and a world that is desperate for the light of God's goodness, that we might show the love of God through his church. Jesus would say this. He says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and praise their Father in heaven. What are those good works? Bearing all things. Believing all things. Hoping all things. Enduring all things. What God could use with people like that. What God could do with people like that. I pray that that's who we are, that that is what our culture is as a church. That we're able to say that not only am I bearing some things, but I'm bearing all things. Spurgeon says this, you must have fervent charity towards the saints, but you will find very much about the best of them which will try your patience. For like yourself, they are imperfect and they will not always turn their best side towards you, but sometimes sadly exhibit their infirmities. Be prepared therefore to contend with all things in them. Our sin looks a lot worse than other people, doesn't it? And yet we have to understand that we're all imperfect and we're called to bear all things. The word for bears all things here can also be translated as covers all things. Paul brings an important truth along with 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. I would, Spurgeon speaking again, my brothers and saints, that we could all imitate the pearl oyster. A hurtful particle intrudes itself into its shell, and this vexes and grieves it. It cannot eject the evil, and what does it do but cover it with precious substance extracted out of its own life, by which it turns the intruder into a pearl. 
Oh, that we could do so with the provocations we receive from our fellow Christians, so that the pearls of patience, gentleness, long-suffering, and forgiveness might be bred within us by that which has harmed us. Agape love believes all things. We're called to choose to believe the best of others. Another quote from Spurgeon says, love as far as she can believes in her fellows. I know some persons who habitually believe everything that is bad, but they are not the children of love. I wish the chatters would take a turn at exaggerating other people's virtues and go from house to house, trumping up some stories of their acquaintances. Do we speak about people negatively? Or are we choosing to believe the best in people? Love hopes all things. Love has confidence in the future, not because we think it's just going to get better from here, but it hopes for the best because we know that God is faithful even if we become faithless. Love hopes in a God who holds our future. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. The greatness of agape love is it keeps on bearing, believing, and hoping it doesn't give up. Agape love makes friends out of enemies. I should have gotten an amen from that because you were once enemies of God. Jesus says this, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Our sin made us enemies of God, but Jesus would say, I call you friend. Agape love makes friends out of enemies. Our sin has made us an enemy of God, but God has chosen agape love for us. If your brethren, Spurgeon speaking again, if your brethren are angry without a cause, be sorry for them, but do not let them conquer you by driving you into a bad temper. Stand fast in love, endure not some things, but all things for Christ's sake, so you shall prove yourself to be a Christian indeed. The church is filled with enemies of God that have been turned into his friends. Because Jesus himself endures things with us. The best way to understand each of these is to see them in the life of Jesus. We could replace the word love with the name Jesus and the description would make perfect sense. Jesus suffers long, amen, yes, that's true. He is kind, amen, yes, that's true. Jesus does not envy, yes. We can make it through the whole chapter, but here is the challenge, friends. We can measure our spiritual, spiritual maturity by seeing how it sounds when we put our name in place of love. Ian suffers long. Well, I failed already because I know that there are moments in my life where I do not choose to suffer for the sake of someone else. If you put your name and replace love with your name, does it sound ridiculous? Does it sound untrue? Is it convicting to know that we, we have failures in these areas? There is a reason why Paul put this chapter in the midst of discussion of spiritual gifts. Paul wants the Corinthians, the, the Christians in Corinth and us to remember that, that giftedness is not the measure of maturity. The display of love is that measure. Again, the mark of a true disciple, a follower of Jesus is agape love. It's not our opinions. It's not the church we attend. It's not the political party that we align to. It's not what movement we side on. It will always be and only be agape love. As we wind down and finish this chapter, we see here, starting in verse 8, love never fails. 
But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I came, but, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. We see here the permanence of love. Love continues. It says, love never fails. Love never gives up. And it might just be that if you're listening to this study, that you have given up on people, maybe a specific person, and God would say to you, that isn't agape love. Maybe you're, you're hearing this study and in your mind you've been meditating on giving up on your marriage. That's not agape love. That is not what God's desire is for you. Paul addresses the overemphasis the Corinthian, Corinthian Christians had on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He shows they should emphasize love more than the gifts because the gifts are temporary. Love is the work itself. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are appropriate for the present time, but they are not permanent. They're only for a work on this side of eternity. But when that which is perfect is fulfilled, when we are in the eternal presence of the perfect one, when we are with the Lord forever, either through the return of Christ or graduation to eternity. The gifts that we see today, they are temporary, but love is permanent. Paul likens uh, this, this passage to when I was a child. We can see that love matures us. I can, I can remember the day I got, I got married to my wife, and I remember thinking, man, we are choosing to just be committed. We're loving each other. Right? We, we celebrated, and then the next day when we woke up at Disney, uh, Disney World, the happiest place on earth, on earth, we found ourselves arguing about where we were going to eat. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, is this, what, what did we do? <laughs> but choosing to love, choosing to deny myself, choosing to sacrifice, to suffer long, to be patient, that love has matured me. That love has matured us and our marriage. And we get to celebrate this year 10 years of being married. What a miracle. That is amazing. But love matures us. Choosing love matures us. He says here, now we see in, in a mirror dimly, but then face to face when we can see when we can fully see Jesus not as a poor re reflected image, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will be overshadowed by the immediate presence of Jesus. He's saying here the gifts are going to be temporary, but when we are face to face with Jesus, everything will be perfected. Those, those things that are temporary, we, we, we don't need them anymore. Paul uses the term face-to-face -to, -face to describe complete, unhindered fellowship with God. 1 John 3, 2 tells us that when we get to heaven, we shall see him as he is. There will be no more barriers to our relationship with God. In heaven, I will know God as perfectly as I can. I will know just as I also am known. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be all-knowing as God is, but it does mean that I will know him as perfectly as I can. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are necessary and appropriate for today, for right now, when we are not yet fully matured and we only know in part. But there will come a day, friends, when the gifts are unnecessary and we can be excited for that day because we will be face-to-face -face with our Savior. The worship team can come up as we, 
Read this last verse. It says this, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The three great pursuits of the Christian life are not miracles. It's not power. It's not spiritual gifts. The greatest pursuit is faith, hope, and love. Though God's miracles and his power are amazing and given by the Holy Spirit today, they were never meant to be the focus or goal of our Christian lives. Instead, Paul here exhorts us to pursue faith, hope, and love. What is your Christian life focused on today? What are you really wanting more of? It should come back to faith, hope, and love. If it doesn't, we need to receive God's sense of priorities and put our focus where it belongs. Paul ends this chapter by saying the greatest of these is love. He gives an emphasis to agape love and its greatness. Love is greatest because it will continue. It will grow even in eternity. When we are in heaven, faith and hope will have fulfilled their purpose. We won't need faith when we see God face to face. We won't need hope in the coming of Jesus once he comes, but we will always love the Lord and each other and grow in that love through eternity. Church, we can no longer sit on the sidelines and let the world define what love is. We must be active in how we love. We must choose to reflect agape love. Love is a verb. It's an action word. We are called to build a pattern of agape love. Agape love is a learned behavior. And it readies us for eternity because it transfers into eternity. Love is also greatest because it is an attribute of God. Faith and hope aren't, aren't part of God's character and personality. God does not have faith in the way that we have faith because he never has to trust outside of himself. God does not have to hope the way we have hope because he knows all things as, and is in complete control. But God is love and will always be love. Now, we don't have to choose between faith, hope, and love. Paul isn't trying to make us choose but he wants to emphasize the point that without love as the motive and goal, the gifts, what we do are meaningless distractions. If we lose love, you lose everything. He would say this to the church in Ephesus in Revelation. I see your good works. I see your good deeds, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. And what is the remedy for that? Repent and return. Go back to, go back to agape love. 1 John 4, 8 says this, he, do, he who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. If you want to know what love is, watch what love has done. Everything that we've been talking about in, in regards to agape love is Jesus. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Church, would you stand as we close, as we have a time of remembering the goodness of God through communion? We have this time as we sing together to meditate on God's agape love towards us. You might find yourself, whether in this room or watching online or listening to the radio, where you, have, you, you are now only hearing about agape love. You don't have a right relationship with the Lord. Today could be the day where you can confess your sin. You can confess your need for a Savior. You can confess your need to have that agape love in your life. I would encourage you to do that. If you're in the room today, I would encourage you as we leave this room to just stay in your seat and sit and wait for a pastor or wait, wait for someone to come speak with you and to pray with you. But church, as you hold the elements of communion in your hand, we have the, the flattened piece of bread. It's broken. It's flat. It represents 
the life of Jesus, sinless, broken and beaten, crucified on a cross. We remember what Jesus has chosen. We have the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that he who knew no sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so as we sing and as we worship, you have the freedom to partake of the elements, to remember all that Christ has done for you in revealing what agape love is. So let's pray and Pastor Jason will continue the service. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you, God, that we have this reminder through communion of what you've done, the sacrifice that you've chosen for us. And I pray now, God, that you would continue to change us from the inside out. That where there is a lack of agape love, God, would you fill that? Would you fill that with your agape love? Where there might be irritation, God, would you change us so that we might be a better reflection of your love? We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in this time. Be glorified here in this place, Jesus. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.